Hi, welcome to Sweetman Podcast. I'm your host, I'm Simon Sweetman. This is episode 200. Uh, that seems pretty pretty big and significant. In reality, you know what comes next, episode 201. Uh, there's no plan beyond that except for episode 202. But I do want to thank you all if you've been listening to more than one of these and I want to thank you if this is the first one you listen to. This is uh, something very slightly different in the podcast. This is the first time I will have talked to uh, two people separately and put it together. It seemed like the right thing to do. So conversation first with David Kilgore and then a separate conversation with his brother Hamish. They, you know, the, you know the Kilgores, they're very important in the story of uh, New Zealand music. They occasionally come together and form two thirds of The Clean, and they also have solo albums and solo careers and side projects that they are involved in. Um, I'm a big fan of The Clean, I'm a big fan of The Kilgores. Uh, I had, this was my first time in both cases meeting them. They were, funnily enough, uh, a couple of months ago, they were touring New Zealand separately at the same time. Uh, Hamish resides most of the time in New York, has done for most of the last, I think, close to 30 years. And David is down south still. So they just happened to be doing these shows a couple of nights apart. It seemed like the right thing to do to get in touch with them each and get a conversation with them. So it's around about a 30, 40 minute conversation in both cases. Uh, the one with David is backstage at the San Fran in the green room during the day. You might hear Ziggy who runs the venue coming in and bringing us a cup of tea. Um, and I think there's a little bit of background noise, some, some power drills and stuff, some roadworks going on and building construction next door. A few days later I talked to Hamish Kilgore and we spent most of the morning together having breakfast and a chat and uh, all this sort of stuff off tape and then uh, we went down and stood in an alleyway where all sorts of noise was happening and it seemed like the perfect place to be for the conversation that we had. I think it's basically a single sentence by Hamish and it lasts for about 35 minutes with a couple of uh, pauses for breath. Um, He seems to solve most of the world's problems in that time and go some way towards explaining the cosmic energy of uh, himself, the music that he loves and the music that he's helped make. Uh, I, in both cases, I had had email interviews with the Kilgores separately before, but as I say, my first time meeting them. Uh, So I hope you enjoy this. It's the first split episode of Sweetman Podcast. It is episode 200. Um, my thanks as always to the sponsors, Tea Leaf Tea, La Pitti Chocolat and Yeasty Boys. I want to mention that way back in the past, Phantom Bill Stickers was very kind to this podcast as was Lafare. And uh, my uh, wife, Katie, is a very understanding uh, person in, in all senses. You would have guessed that by now. But sometimes her and Oscar are kicked out of the house so that I can talk to someone. Or sometimes they're told to sort of cower in the corner and stay quiet. So I thank them for, for that. And uh, my thanks to the Lo-Fi Sheriff James for making this podcast with me and making it happen. Um, I hope you enjoy this episode 200. Two separate conversations with the legendary Kilgore Brothers. I mean, I don't know where we're gonna where we're gonna go with this because you you said you don't really like talking about music. We're gonna. Well, I do into, really, but you know, not in public. Not your, <laughs> not your own music. Yeah, no, I'm only, yeah, I don't mind really. Balance your job. Yeah. Mm, mm. Well, shall we start with the new album and then go back? Sure. Because you're on a tour at the moment, to, and we've only just met. We've we've I've, I interviewed you on the phone a few years ago when you did the Slowboat install. Yes. And right. we had a nice chat and. Uh, 
I've obviously seen you play and written about you, and we've we've had a little bit of correspondence, mm-hmm. we've had a few Definitely. chats over, over the last few days. Mm. Um, but um, we've only just met, so I, I feel like we should talk about the new album since you're, you you know, you're not a hard sell kind of guy, but you are on the road, mm. having just released a new record, and mm. then we'll see where we go from there. How's mm. that sound? Sounds great. So I mean, there's been a lot of talk about the sort of grief that might have inspired mm. this record. Mm. Um, how uh, I guess you know. At what step do you start to process that in terms of making a record? Because there's a lot of processing of it before you get that far. Sure. Well, as I said to someone, I'm not really someone to uh, you know run to the guitar or the pen or whatever. It isn't something major happens. And I don't. I didn't do anything after my mother died. I think my mother's death was probably the, a new level of experience, emotional experience. I guess I'd call it. So you know, I didn't do anything for ten months, and it was still sort of uh, you know hanging over me would be the only way I could describe it. Mm. And I thought, well, maybe I should write about it. So I did write some stuff straight away. Mm. So we started recording, and it had a certain vibe, the stuff we first recorded, and I thought, well, I'm just going to stick to this vibe and see if we can maintain a mood throughout the whole record. And, yeah, mm. So that's what we did. Mm. Pretty simple, mm. really. And you're sharing the parts around the the globe now to, to kind of put this together, right? You're all in a little bit, a little bit of you, a few of you are in different places. We try this record as with the last couple. We try to get together every at least three to six months. Yeah. Record for two days and then do it again later. Yeah. So and that's how we made this one. That's why it took us so long. It took us yeah. so long because Tony's in America mm. and Tane is on his camp. Mm. Tom and I are still down there. Mm. So you were pieced together over a long time. Mm-hmm. I was struck by um, how, you know, I guess this is exactly what you want, but so much of your music, just to anyone who's listened to, to it, feels instantly familiar. There mm. is, you know, I, I feel like that, that opening track. You know, I thought about the Barbara Manning record that you played on, which mm. is not which is not your record, but mm. you're involved in it. And there were hints of hints of that came to me straight away. For example, mm-hmm. yeah, I can get that. Yeah, sure. How? When did you notice that you had a, a flavour, a, a sound that you could replicate without repeating? If that makes sense, you know, that you could riff on straight away. I guess as soon as we started playing. Realised, you know, Hamish and I realised we're onto something. Mm. And I guess it was to do with the sound, of course, but yeah, it was pretty obvious. We had, oh, no, yeah, I would just say yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, sure, I'm, I'm always going to be me, whatever I do, there's going to yeah. be a flavour of me there. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I might, well, you know, and that's just part of it. Really. Well, I'm going to change tack. That answers the question. It does. Sure. It does. It was it was barely a question, so it okay. definitely answers it. I'm um, I'm going to change tack and let's go, let's go back to when you first kind of started playing. If you, if we're going to talk about your sound and how it developed, and you yeah. say that it was there with you and Hamish, almost it kind, instantly. It kind of happened by accident. It was just getting the right guitar, perhaps off out of Bathgate, and you know we knew nothing about equipment, and we just happened to stumbled into this amp that was for sale called a gun classic mm. amp and it had reverb on it and I didn't know you know what reverb was but it sounded fantastic and I thought wow that sounds like every record I've ever ever liked mm. so we bought the same but it was sort of that kind of helped create that kind of sound but um 
Yeah, I mean, I looked at some stuff of Alec Bathgate as well, so, you know, he helped, he helped greatly in the early days mm, mm. just by watching him play. Mm. Yeah, but, he, uh, he's one of those guys, isn't he, that not a, you know, like people reference him all the time. Yeah, if you were being... around at that point, and, you know, you definitely, and a musician would have taken notice of Alec for sure. Yeah, and I was, because I was thinking another another guy at that particular time that people, including Alec references him, but Phil Judd was a guitar, pl- a guitar player that people were taking a lot of ideas Absolutely. from. Yeah. Well, everyone, you know, we were going to those shows and Spillians came to town, we'd go and, you know, I saw this Judd period. Chris and that crew, they loved early Spillians, they would be at the, all those shows, you know, mm. so we were checking all that stuff out, Mm-mm. for sure. Well, where, what's your first memory of connecting with music, I guess, as a listener? Well, as a kid in Rainfurly, I was born in Rainfurly, and of course the radio, you know, by the time I was five, it was 66, and the radio mm. was pretty good. Mm. And the radio just went all the time. Mm. And we had friends over the road who were teenagers, and they turned us on to stuff, and Beatles, plastic bags, and they were trying to be teenagers in Rainfurly mm. in 66. Mm. Thank you, Ziggy. Mm. The tea has arrived. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got a couple of minutes to Bruce, we didn't Perfect. Thank you. Some milk sugar, and I've got some custard creams. Perfect. So those are my first. This one I first really fell in love with music, and I listened to the monkeys. And also just down the road on a in the winter on a Saturday, there'd be ice skating, and they'd play musical chairs Mm. on ice Mm. skates. And that was thank you. When the music stopped, you had to sit Mm. down. So Mm. it was all Holly's Beatles, all that stuff. Mm. So I was getting in there. So Mm. Mm. and and what was the connection with? what was the dialogue with Hamish around listening to music and then going and doing it yourself? Like you guys well, we were, were, were discovering things together and sharing them? Absolutely, he turned me on to stuff as a kid mm. all mm. the time. Uh, and you know, that love of music turned into becoming, you know, collecting records, uh, scouring second hand stores. Mm. Uh, even we were obsessed with, uh, on Saturday morning, going through the paper and seeing people selling collections, who we became mad collectors for a while until the music came along, thanks to Punk and the Enemy, and we thought maybe we could do it. But mm. right up to that point, we were just mad about collecting music, mm. getting bigger record collections. Yeah, more story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, more, more, more. <laughs> and but we were devouring rock history too. I mean, I, some things I had was I had the Encyclopedia of Rock by the Lead Rocks, and mm. you know the Enemy book of. Uh, Rock, I think they called it the best albums of all. Well, and I just went through, it was an encyclopedia of rock, and, and they picked the best records. So I'd go through those books and I'd pick the best records that they you know, recommended and I'd check them out mm. off the list. But you know, that's one thing I used to do. So we're pretty obsessed. Mm-hmm. Mm. One of the things that always comes up in the, I guess, in the overall New Zealand music story from that time, and certainly anything connected to Flying Nun, is the sort of with South Island particularly, the feeling of isolation, mm. this uh, this feeling of figuring things out for yourself and everything coming from miles away. Absolutely. Was, uh, yeah. A lot of New Zealand was like that. At the yeah, time. yeah. I think you might even be able to argue Australia as well. Like yeah. Pre internet, pre vax, yeah. pre all that stuff. Um, yeah. It certainly had something to do with it. Um, mm. Mm. Uh, and it also made you really hungry to find stuff. And that was always there, that need for more stuff. So there was a hunger for that. But at the same time, you know, a lot of uh, people were touring, uh, international acts were touring right throughout the country in those days, so we were seeing a lot of acts. Everyone from Joe Cocker to Graham Parker to The Cure to Lou Reed to, you know, so we're, uh, to even the Reformed Birds, so we were seeing all that stuff. You know, we were going to all those shows as teenagers and soaking all that up as well. So. Um, blown away by at least some of it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know, things like Chuck Berry at the Town Hall. And, 
Amazing. The list goes on. It was really vibrant for touring. Yeah. Expected. Amazing that yeah that these people would come out and and do the almost the whole of the country, right? They'd play yeah. six or eight centres, sometimes more. Yeah. And package tours with, you know, three or four, you know, they might be slightly off their heyday, but three or four big name acts. And, you know, that's what that had always been into the 60s, so there was that isolation, mm. but that was going on. Mm. Well, you know, you can go and see Roy Wilson and the Stones mm. in Chicago. I mean, mm. small places. I mean, so, <laughs> sure, there's isolation going on, but, you know, there's all that, there's that going on as well. Yeah, you know, yeah. The records, yeah. The, you know, the magazines and that. But, uh, yeah. yeah. And so what else are you doing in your in your childhood and adolescence outside of absorbing music? That's obviously the, it becomes a big focus. Well, living on farm communities, we grew up in Ranfield. My father was a stock agent, and then we moved to my grandmother's farm for like five or six years, so... Farming background and farms really mm. Mm. until we were teenagers, and then we moved to um, Dunedin. Mm. So it's kind of an idyllic upbringing in some ways. Mm. Yeah. And what was Dunedin like for you? Big, big city. Big city, yeah. Well, big time. Yeah. I mean, you know, coming from North Canterbury, Chile, we were on the farm. Going to Christchurch was exciting. We'd go quite regularly there. It was a mm. big day, but you know, Dunedin was a new big city. Mm. Although I'd been as a very young child living in Ranfurly, but uh, no, a, a wonderful city to arrive in. Mm. I was quite taken with as a, as a ten year old mm. or twelve year old. Mm. 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 So, what's the conversation around? We need to find some instruments and 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 have a go at this. Hamish had had a go at a few things and given up. Uh, maybe even bagpipes at one point <laughs> as a child with due to my father's uh, pressure, but. Uh, and due to my Dylan fixation and Stone's fixation, when I was like about 10, I thought, oh, well, maybe I should buy an acoustic guitar. So I bought one and I found it far too difficult. And I just actually started making up my own chords straight away. <laughs> Did write a horrible song and then stopped. It was just far too difficult. And then, of course, Punk came along and thought, wow, the enemy can do it. And they're our friends and maybe we can too. So that was the, that was the conversation there. Mm, mm, mm. And when do you go, you know, People can be content making noise, and um, but when do you go? This is, if not more than noise, this is ex- we you know this is enjoyable noise. We yeah, yeah, yeah. A great moment was um, meeting Peter Gutteridge, and then I think I would just seen it in a media. When I met Peter Gutteridge at school, uh, maybe a few weeks later, I was out at his house in Portobello, and we wrote a song. I had an electric guitar which we plugged into a gramophone. And we wrote a song, I've written two songs, just out of, you know, I don't know, I guess I have never written a song before, and we, I just said, shit, maybe we can do this. Mm. We'll get Hamish on drums and we'll form a band, you play bass, I'll play guitar. <laughs> that was it. That was it? Yeah. It's a pretty simple story for a, a legacy that's built up around it. Yeah. You can never predict that, of course, you're not going for that, mm. but do you sometimes if it's not just in a moment like this where I'm making you talk about this, but do you sometimes look back on that and go, it's kind of incredible, there's any longevity the around it? last ten or so years, definitely. Mm. It's quite a moment. But the moment we just met outside the school was a moment too. I mean, mm. a lot of them, but mm. I think going out to his house was definitely, yeah, mm. one of those moments. Yeah. Mm. Mm. So the Clean famously records some noisy pop tunes that people love and we know now you know the the power of the live show it's a band that in my understanding if it didn't really ever quite start it certainly hasn't stopped it's had this wonderful 
I don't know that you really call them reunions, do you? They just sort of the band just forms again. Just it just gets together. It just happens. Just something that sparks it off. But yeah, you're right. There's no yeah. plan. And there has been. Yeah, it might look, it might have looked like that for a while, but no. <laughs> So there have been times where people have come to us and said, well, our American promoter, yeah. you know, you know, you could just do two years off, then the clinic just tour for a year, you know, two years off, whatever, tour for a year, the world, and you could do that for mm. quite a long time. That was mm. a while ago. Mm. And I, I've turned at the guys, everyone's looked at the ground. <laughs> Sounds like too much planning. <laughs> so, you know, those things were always there for the clean, especially in the last 10, 15 years. Now, when do you first go overseas with the clan? Like, how does it's that happen? You've got you've got a, a, a separate dedicated following overseas, I would say. Yeah, on the Smith yeah. scale, for yeah. sure. Yeah, it's yeah. Kind of, it's kind of growing in some ways, especially in America. But yeah. So how does that happen? Like the first trip? First trip, 89, I think. Well, we're all, uh, Rob, the bats are touring Europe. Hamish is in New York. And I'm holidaying in London, and the promoter, Craig Taylor, who lives in Wellington again, yeah. Um, who was managing the chills at the time, he said, why don't you support the bats? What did they do from Greyhound? And we did, we did a show before that in London, and then, yeah, we did the, that. And then he said, well, why don't you come back into uh, Europe in six months or something? And we did that, and we did the East Coast on the way over. So that's how that all started. And then, of course, the last show in London, Craig invited, because we wrote a whole lot of songs before that, uh, uh, when we went back, one of the shows, Craig Taylor invited a lot of music industry people, and Jeff Travis is one of them, and he signed us. Mm. So we recorded that album a week later, you know, yeah, and then flew home. Mm. Amazing. Because yeah. I, I think the very first time, like I had listened to, you know, your first solo record and, and obviously things from the clean, um, but I think the very first time I ever saw you play was in Wellington, basically accompanying Barbara Manning. Doing ah, that tour with her would be the, the first. The Plexico Boys, that's yeah, right. Yeah, that's right, yeah. Where did we play here? Uh, well, you played at the university. You must have, yes, you must have played a nighttime gig as well, but this is like my earliest days of university. Oh, okay, so, and I do so we would that. see things like, you know, Chris Knox would come around every year, Paul Abana Jones, rah rah rah. But yeah, there was a lunchtime gig and it was basically half of Calexico and well, what became better known as Calexico yeah. yourself, Barbara Manning. Oh, yeah. yeah. I said I mean she came back she came here a few times, right? She I came remember back seeing again into it, I think. Yes. She wanted to live here. Yeah. She wanted to move here. I remember seeing her at Bodega, maybe solo. That'd be right. Possibly with Julia Dean's opening or Fur Patrol opening or something like yeah, that. She could do another tour with yeah. the boys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, how did that connection come about? I think my friends of mine knew Barbara from way before that. Mm. Um, Tex, even near our sound, and uh, mm. uh, all sorts of people knew, but I, I actually didn't meet her until closer to that time. She knew we stayed at her house at the end of the tour. Yeah. But she knows, you know, she knew she a lot of people for just retouring and being a, you know, Music yeah. Fan. yeah, yeah, yeah. I got the feeling she might have wanted to. I mean, she recorded that album with all of you guys. I say all of you guys. There's uh, Chris Knox is on it, and, and yeah, yeah. Um, just called in New Zealand, which is obviously like a little um, a little audio travelogue of her experience. But that that and the cover image suggests that she was pretty taken with the place. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. And you also around that time. A year or two either side of that, you basically hooked up with uh, Yola Tingo. Mm-hmm. And how are those connections happening? Well, Yola Tingo, we did we were on a, a very early compilation. What was it later? I can't remember. It'll come to me. 
and we did you know tango were on the compilation with the clan car which I remember what it was called way way back so I kind of knew them a wee bit there but we ran into them touring on one of those on that tour I think mm. we got back together and you know toured Europe and met them and they were staying in the same hotel we were staying at mm. and then a month later we did a show with them where they supported us and it was just yeah Ira and Georgia and I can't remember who was on bass at that point so it was very early days for them too mm, I think I was going to say before an album by then yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. that goes way back to then yeah Flash and forward. since then, of course, I've supported them many times. <laughs> You're going to say yeah. flash forward, aren't you, on stage with them just a couple of weeks ago? Yeah. Or a month ago, or whatever it was? Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, the friendship's all there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Amazing. I know. I know. <laughs> and I mean, I'd thank them pretty much for my any kind of uh, um, any kind of career, if you want to call that in America. I thank them for it, really, all the connections, you know, because I met Mac from, although you know, I'd never met Mac up until touring with Yellow know, Tango from Merge. Mm. And all those friends of mine knew Mac and he'd been here and stuff. But uh, so I toured with Mac because he was in the band as well, and um, gave him a demo of Feather and the Engine, and that was that. Mm. And mm. that, you know, I'm still on Merge too. Yeah, yeah. So I can thank you, Tango, for all that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, wow. And so, what in you, you know, makes you decide you're going to do a solo album? Because you know, we, we're we're going quite far back to your first solo album I now. I thought it was time to go off and do my own thing, but you know, stupid didn't think, well, I'm going to need a band to do it, so I'm not <laughs> going to just be me and a guitar. Mm. So you know, it's not really solo, <laughs> but I found out pretty quickly you need a band, you need a good band too, mm. Mm. something you can get on with and work with. Yeah, yeah, but it's there. There is a you know there is a difference. There obviously you can't replicate the clean, but there is a difference in all of your solo records, isn't? There are identifiable voices, two of them, your singing voice and your guitar voice. But it never sounds like one of your solo albums is substituting for the clean, or vice versa. Well, it was definitely the idea of on the cars. I really didn't want it to sound anything like the clean. It's mm. still going to sound the elements of it, of course. It's me, but mm. it was a definite move to produce that record and move away from all that mm. yeah if anything sounds too clean like it, it, <laughs> it gets dampened, put, put dampened, to the dampened down or yeah. uh, re-edited you know, <laughs> sure. but you I mean I've seen you play solo gigs I saw you play a solo acoustic show with the Finn Brothers oh right and yeah. uh, so you, obviously once you've got the material at certain points you have gone out and done that yeah I did make myself do solo stuff uh, I just avoid it now though totally yeah what was it I was going to say what was it what was that like? I did quite a bit back in those days. Um, you know, I liked it. I like a band. It's something to fall back on. Mm. But I support in that. But the Finn too was fantastic. I mean, mm. it terrified me. I couldn't say no, of course. No. You know. And it was Beck Runger but as well in her, in her musical infancy. I mean, but she was fully formed. She was well, amazing. That was interesting. Some nights. I mean, because I followed Beck. Yes. Al Beck or Beck. And, yeah. uh, and then it was me then the Finn. So it was like quite a sandwich. And she was just about to explode. Mm, mm. And the audience was just loved it. So yeah. Yeah, I can remember the Wellington show. I turned down going to see Bjork. And t- it was the same night. And I remember going, have I done the right thing? And she was, it was an amazing lineup actually. Yeah. Like, you know, it really was an amazing lineup the way it worked. And it was the old. Um, James Cabaret, which is a great venue. That's right, it was too. Yeah, that yeah. was a great tour to do. It yeah. was so lovely, it was so good to me, but yeah. Mm, mm, lovely. Mm. Amazing. So what do you do in your um, in your in between times? Because you know, if we go through and and we'll do a bit more of this, but if we go through and reference these people you've worked with, these, you know, touring and recording with Lamb Chop, you know, the the couple of records with Sam Hunt and what do you do when you're not doing this like because you don't 
you're not a promo guy, you're not mm. a you're not a video making guy. I mean, you've done them, but you're not you know desperate to do this stuff. I'm not full time worrying about no, music. No, no, you're not a yeah. you're not a music industry person. Mm. The last five years, I've just looked really simply. I mm. really enjoyed it actually. Mm. So yeah, I mean, I'm busy with stuff, but. You know. And there's always something to deal with, business-wise, sure. or music business stuff, and thinking away at that, and mm, mm. just living really simply and surviving, and just so bloody content, I've got to say. Really? Yeah. And you and you paint a lot, or a re- uh, I have been recently, but yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. When did when did that start for you? you As a kid, my mother was quite artistic, and she really encouraged that. Mm. So as a kid, really, we were always doing hard. Mm. Mm. And you know, the, the painting thing, I never really got into, a wee bit as a kid. But it was purely my partner said, why don't you try painting? And because, you know, a bit broke at the time, I guess. <laughs> why don't you paint and see if you can sell them? And I put it up, got a website going, put the paintings up, and immediately started selling paintings. So just to fans. Mm, mm. And that's always sort of there now. I don't even put paintings up, I just when I paint, there'll yeah. be someone writing, you got a painting? Yeah. Just, and the cheapest chips too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just send someone a photo of People done go, Why don't you exhibit? Why don't you put your prices up or something? Well, yeah, but no one's going to buy them then. They're cheap and, you know, accessible. <laughs> yeah, mm, yeah. Mm, mm. But I guess there's, I mean, there's lots of people that make music that do some sort of, particularly songwriters that do some sort of visual art. There's, you know, there's, there's all the books and documentaries about the subject that creativity shows its way in different and there's a merge between them mm. do you find a meditational aspect to painting and do you find a little bit do you find it influences songwriting or you can work ideas out between the two or are they very separate no they're quite separate really but there's a meditative thing to both of them mm. yeah for sure working away at something plugging away but not mm. really no mm. yeah, it's a distraction from music or something else you might be doing it's great for bad weather mm. <laughs> or boredom yeah 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 yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, tell me about the Sam Hunt thing because that was a project that, I mean, was great, but it was a, a long time in the works, certainly in terms of Sam's wider discussion around wanting to put his poems to music. Yes. How did you come to that? How did we get you? Yeah, how did, how did you, it start? Or? How, yeah, how did you guys get together on that? Well, we ran into each other on a plane actually and uh, put it off. And uh, as I was leaving, I said, well, you know, I've always day- used to daydream about making an album with you. And they said, well, let's do it. And I think in the interim, we made the album Falling Deeper, mm. which was two of his poems, because it wasn't quite really good. I think. And I started writing songs immediately. I thought, oh, I wonder if I could write a song for a poem at that time. And I did write about three or four that weekend, and mm. uh, I sent them to him, and he got excited about that. And I said, well, maybe I should just do an album of... Uh, Song, he said, do it. I think he was still thinking about it, really, yeah. the spoken word thing. And then, lo and behold, you know, well, you know, he was still keen to do the spoken word thing, but you know, about two or three years later, he said, okay, just basically rang out and said, I'm ready, let's go. So, mm, mm, that's how mm. it happened. Yeah, amazing. I mean, I think it's that first song on the on the record chord, mm-hmm. which was always a favourite to hear Sam read, but listening to your version of it, I mean, it actually feels like a song you could have written. Like, it, you know, I, I guess it's got your flavour in the music, but it, even even in the lyric, I don't know. It's, you say you'd always you'd dreamed of making an album with him. Like, how did... I, I, it's a funny question to ask, because I feel like everyone in New Zealand is aware of Sam Hunt and always 
has been and always should be, but do you remember encountering his work early in your life? I encountered him first, really because, or his infamy, I suppose, because my father managed the Captain Cook Hotel, which is the reason we moved to the Cook in Mm. in about 72, I think. And, uh, you know, the buzz went out, Sam Sam was there doing the uh, fellowship there for six months, and he might have only had a three-month one that time. So he was in the bar, and buzz went out, Sam Hunt's in the bar, and even then, for some reason, I knew he was a poet, and he was kind of famous, and he was dressed in white denim, Mm. and he just looked amazing. And Mm. I met him in the toilets, actually, I was having a leak, and Sam popped out, and (laughs) where did we talk, and that's how I met him. Mm. Get rid of the toilet part. <laughs> Sam doesn't worry about that part of the story. Yeah, so I ran into Sam at the cop and we had a wee talk when I was 10, but he didn't remember it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's one of those perfect New Zealand sweet. And then Hamish later on, he, Hamish was working for an advertising company in Christchurch and they decided they had a, a client, Firestone or something like that, maybe Sam could sell tyres. Mm. So mm. Hamish was being the freak of the office, he was seen to meet Sam. This is, you know, years before I and I spent the day with Sam, basically just got, you know, drunk and stoned with Sam, had a wonderful day. <laughs> yeah. And of course they never picked up the ideas and thought, maybe having a, a guy that like smoking pot and drinking booze isn't the kind of guy to sell tyres. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind maybe of Maybe it is. <laughs> so there's that reconnection too, yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah. What's, your, what's your relationship been like with Hamish through the years, with him living abroad? most of the time really mm. but for you know ha- has there been like you know we see what your relationship's like in a way we get a picture of it when we see you on stage together yeah that there's a version of it happening in front of us Absolutely. but yeah how has that sort of evolved you know can you track how that's changed with time or is it very consistent no matter where you each are in the it's world? been pretty consistent really we meet you know we just meet on the same wavelength i suppose and yeah mm, mm. but we're definitely brothers yeah. But of course it's been even more intense because we've made so much music together. Mm. And under quite intense circumstances too. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's been it's been a long haul for mm. got this far, a lot of brothers don't. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. But we've made all this music together, so as Bob you know, tell you it's you know Yes. It's, it's, it, can be, it can be intense, but it can also be even just an enormous fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And what sort of conversation goes on between you two off stage like how close are you and each other's you know your brothers but how close are you in each other's lives in terms of knowing what you're up to and how do you feel the need to be in touch when we're getting on well yeah everything yeah mm. yeah you just, just share everything really mm. sure mm. yeah we're brothers I mean, that's always going to be there yeah you can't it's hard to make a, a really close friend out of a Mm. A family member mm. is just a different thing, isn't it? That is a different yeah. thing. You yeah. might try, but you just got to really say you're very related. And, you know, we're and stuff. Well, my brother, my brother, who's older than me, lives in Auckland, and all of our news just travels between our parents. Yeah. You know, we don't actually speak, yeah. <laughs> but then when we see each other, it's fine because exactly. because we there's a, there's a connection, an obvious connection, and because there's only the two of us. Our parents have just always transferred the bulk of our news. Right. I yeah, mean, yeah. you know, I have his number obviously, and I text him and call him, and we remember our birthdays. But we can go months without speaking. Well, we're but, the same. I mean, yeah, same so with Robert Scott. You know, yeah. We might not talk for ages, but we've had so many intense experiences together. It's, you know, when we mm. see each other, bang, we're there. Mm. You know, mm. We don't need to because we. You know. What do you? What does? 
Hamish and Robert, what do they... Does it matter what they make of your solo music and do they give you feedback and are they no. part, have they ever oh. been part of, like maybe with the first album or anything like that? We're all a wee bit hesitant to give each other feedback, but there were yeah. steps on the back for sure. Yeah. yeah. Or you're, so all, you're all making um, separate things as yes. well as the stuff we're you We're so close together. to it, you know. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. I mean, Bob's a brother too. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, totally. But And he's also... Um, very busy with his artwork as well as his, his Job, music. And his gallery, yeah. the bats, and he's a busy yeah. guy. He always has been bomb. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, you, so yeah, you it doesn't. You don't have to run things by them. You know, this is my song, not a clean song. There's never been anything like that. No, at the very odd time, maybe a clean session might be scrapped. Can I have that one that I, you know, <laughs> that I sort of brought to the table for yeah, like yeah. that, or some songs that just did the clean couldn't do, and I've just, I've, oh, okay, well that didn't work. I'll just put it on the next record. Yeah, fine. Mm, mm. There's no, no one's uptight about that stuff. That's mm. for sure. Unless it's really, really good, then anyone gets a wee bit clingy <laughs> mm. for sure. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's been a wee while between. Well, I know it's been a wee while between clean records, but was the last time you significantly went out on the road? when you took Peter with you? Uh, was that... The last time we went was... Uh, we toured Australia. That was our last tour. Right. Actually, that was okay. after Peter died. Okay. So you, um, have, you have got back together since then, yeah. Have we? Since Australia... We, yeah, since then we have. Yeah. yeah. You went to Australia. That was the last thing I think okay. we did. Yeah. yeah. I just wondered what sort of... what sort of conversations gone on around more recorded work by the clan? We did a session... Uh, at the Albany Street in Dunedin, a few, just straight after the earthquake actually in Christchurch, which got mm. kiboshed. Bob's family were up there, my mother was up there. But we did manage to do some recordings without each other, because <laughs> everyone was so just... Mm. Um, but, you know, that got kiboshed, but that was the last time we had a go at it. And that was, must be five, six years ago. Mm. Mm. Oh, there's no plans for doing it at the moment. <laughs> well, there's sort of never been a plan, no, as you say, right. right. Yeah. And, I mean, you mentioned like the last 10 years or so having some purchase on nostalgia, having some, you know, uh, pride at looking back or just being baffled at the uh, legacy. But we've also, in the last 10 years or so, there's been, you know, Roger Shepard's book, there's been now Shane's book. There's a lot of stuff coming out that kind of references the stuff you're indirectly mentioned or directly mentioned. Um, are you, do you keep up with that stuff? Are you interested in, in that? I mean, you lived through it, so you don't necessarily need to be buying these books and reading them, but mm. are you interested in them? I've mixed feelings about it, because it's also mm. familiar to me. Mm. For men, I pretty much know all the stories in there, so. Because mm. yeah. I feel like, what, there was Matthew Bannister's book way back. Which was a good book, I like Yeah, yeah, that was very polarizing too. Mm. Like, a lot of people liked it, a lot of people hated it. But that was a long time ago, and then there was sort of nothing for, mm. for years, and now there's, Lots of little. There's more coming. I more think, coming too. too. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Including your own one day. No. <laughs> <laughs> the Never. More I, the more I see the stuff coming out, the more I don't want to do it. I think. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You retract. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, but you know, it, you can't, you can't hide. You know, you can choose to not read it or not need to read it, but you can't mm. hide from it in terms of. I imagine you get people sending you messages. Did you see this? Was you know you were mentioned in this or. You know, you, the way we live now with social media, you you can't avoid that, right? Mm, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but you're okay with it. Look, sorry, what's the you're question? Just, just talking about, like... People talking about... People talking books. about you and books. That's kind people of funny. talking about... 
that, related it's stuff. It's kind of funny when your good old friends are doing it. Mm. Kind of, it's interesting. Mm. But uh, mm. yeah, it's gutsy on their part, mm. for sure. Mm. Yeah. yeah. I'm kind of, it's, I'm so close to it. But, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't want to say too much because uh, <laughs> they're my friends, but you know, I'm just too close to it. Yeah. 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 yeah, and you obviously haven't been. Um, it's also familiar. You have yeah, been, no, 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 <laughs> yeah, but you haven't been grossly misquoted or mischaracterised. I, well, I imagine. I find it funny that Roger called me an introvert, which is which is possible. Maybe an extrovert, an introvert, an extrovert. Um, and Shane mm. called me uh, too, uh, I play it cool. So yeah. I'm not sure what I am. I'm playing it cool. Right? <laughs> So that's what I've got about me. Well, you've got an introvert calling you an introvert there, and a person who's too cool calling you too cool, frankly. So it sort of cancels out, right? So, you know, that's what I got from books. Yeah. <laughs> I came out even. So far. Yeah. And what about, um, I mean, you know, I feel like I know the answer to this based on what we were just talking about then, and also your lack of interest in being a big time industry player. Well, what? I've done my bit though, I have heard a lot. Oh, no, 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 don't get me wrong, I just mean you don't seem caught up in the... For sure, always done ...in the shit. DIY. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always yeah. trying to do it DIY. Yeah, so I wonder what do you make of things like... What do you make of things like reviews and stuff? Like, obviously they have a... They've, they've been helpful to you I take pain. note because I want, I want to know when I should stop putting because they are. <laughs> do you think you find out from that? Possibly. I'll just stop putting them out and make them for myself. <laughs> I mean, that's the plan for the long-term plan. To just make music? It's nice to know people still like the stuff, you know. Yeah, And yeah. putting a record out and touring is to go out and test the water, really, or yeah. find out whether it's still there, the interest yeah. is still there. Yeah, do you do you feel, I mean, you wouldn't have always done that album to a cycle quite like that, but do you feel you kind of need to have some new material to spark you to go and play? Is that the I'll case? I'll only tour if there's a new record out. Yeah. And, or if we get invited to play somewhere. Mm. And that's it, basically. Mm. And that's what I've always tried to do. And now I don't want to tour overseas anymore, I'm sick of that. So this one might be one of the last tours actually, I tell the band, and they just laugh, but I'm, I'm tired of touring, but I'll tour New Zealand's easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But touring overseas in my room. But then you just get up on stage a couple of weeks ago with your Latanga? You were just happened to be there. Right, okay, you were just... Yeah, yeah, yeah. just happened to be in town, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kind of a working holiday, but... Friends, Yeah. Hanging out with friends, it was great to see them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What, I mean, you're a... You're a... If you're not an introvert, you're a humble guy, but so what are um, the, the sort of pinch yourself moments for you about these things, about playing on stage overseas with, you know, I remember, I remember watching you play with Lamb Chop and they invite you back for the encore at Bodega to play Tally Ho and I was, I was like, you know, everyone in the audience is obviously buzzing. Uh, I, I guess, on, are you? <laughs> you know, like, is that special? I love performing, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And pre collaborating like that. Mm. And, and the moment stuff, like, that's wonderful. You've got a tango totally for that stuff. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I love all that stuff. Mm. I think the, the best thing, that, uh, what I can say about the whole life so far, is that I've just been, it's just been really cool. I mean, I've been charmed, and that's the best thing about it all. But that's the best moment, really. Mm. Is that I've managed to have a, a, a certain amount of freedom mm. and done it through the music, you know. Mm. Yeah, mm. that's the best thing about it all. It's kind of amazing. Well, let's go back briefly to the to the new album because it's got a um, a mood and a flavour to it that is so um, contained. You know, it's a very pared back record. Mm. 
was there much that you stripped away? Like, are there is there enough for another album, but it's not as good or whatever, or doesn't suit the mood? Like, how much was? We did talk about making a double album, but I don't know if mm. there's such a thing anymore uh, mm. with uh, Spotify and that. We'll need to talk about that. Well, that's the thing you can do what you like. You can do it. You can put out an EP and exactly. you can put out a bonus EP next week if you want. Exactly. So all those other things we talked about. Yeah. But I know we just decided to strip all the way anything that they got got on the way of the mood. Mm. Kept aside, but there's some unusual stuff we left alone. Some of it might make the next record. Mm. There were some lovely backing tracks and a few songs that got pushed aside. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because it's it's. I'm tired of writing straightforward songs. I've yeah. been for a long time, so we're trying not to do that. So mm. we do, you know, go to some odd places sometimes. Well, it's majority instrumental, actually, isn't it? Yes, it is really two thirds of it. Yeah. 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 And how conscious was that? Like, how much of it? It wasn't conscious at all. It's yeah. That way we like the tracks and I believe them. They're quite often the tracks are there for a vocal. Mm. But the vocal doesn't make it, but um, we just like them enough to keep them. There were other instruments we left off, actually, but yeah. Mm. I try mm. to do a vocal, but mm. if they don't make it, they don't make it. Mm -mm. I feel like, you know, I sat on the record for a long time before I was even able to write about it. I just wanted to keep listening to it, which I think is the, you know, I'm, I'm stuck in a situation where I'm used to it's my job or whatever, or it's my hobby. I, I'm stuck in a situation where a part of processing a record for me is writing about it, but I always find the best ones are the ones where I put it on and go, right, now's the time I'm going to write about it, and I just can't. I just mm. get caught oh, listening good. to it. So I only just wrote about it today, and, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, that was the period of listening to it for, you know, well over a month. Great. Just non, almost non-stop. Mm. Great. Which is a good yeah, which is a good thing to have happen, right? It is. Yeah, I feel the same way about this on the records. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been surprised by the reaction actually to it. Yeah. I thought it was a wee bit indulgent for people. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I don't know what the, the, the sort of operative word these days anyway. Well, you things like that are only indulgent if they arrive quickly on the back of something, I think. Right. Maybe you bought you know I maybe maybe music, you bought yourself music, enough music, reading music, space. Musically I thought it was just indulgent though. Okay. Think, but, yeah. yeah. But I, I think maybe maybe you bought yourself a bit of breathing room by not, you know, flooding the market like it's been a few years. So well, one, one thing we've never done before is sat on a record for so long, I've sat on it's almost two years. It definitely finished it eighteen months ago and that's been cool to mm. find out whether we still like it two years later or even some of it goes back five years, four or five years. Mm. And do we still like it four or five years later? And that's been a great test. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've never done that before. I've waited so long. So we were definitely aware of that and what we were doing that. We're quite conscious of doing that. So instead of interest, sometimes you put a record out and you don't know until two years later whether it was any good or not. You know, yeah, you're yeah. so close to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, can you talk a bit about Peter and the impact of his death? Well, it was stunning. But like I said, my mother's death was probably even more stunning. But yeah, just stunning, really. Yeah, it took me a while to get over that. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Because I know Peter had come back in such a great way. He yes. Was, he was so vibrant the last few years, and uh, I'd been helping him sort out some stuff, some business stuff. Um, and we'd been doing a lot together. We managed to get pure out. I helped him get pure out on my own. So we'd been we had a lot to do with each other. He used to come around to the house a lot and record on the piano. And uh, so those last few years we saw a lot of each other, it was great. Mm. Uh, he really came back, he cleaned up his health quite a bit and um, he came back. He was been rearing, rearing to go. So mm. it was just such a bloody shame what happened to him. It was mm. shocking. Mm. Yeah, I remember that, that gig at Happy 
on that tour in Wellington. Yes, where well, he just arrived that day. That was no plan. Yeah. He just turned up. It just looked yeah. like that. It looked yeah. exactly like that. Because we'd done some shows of them down south, and yes. they, were, they were great. Uh, yeah. At the Chicks, yeah. Yeah. A couple of shows. Well, we backed them on a couple of songs, which was mm. really fun. The idea, it was a great idea he had. He wanted, he decided to clean, because he really wanted to make another album. And yeah. Just a couple of years trying to work out how, how to do it. Mm. And after doing that thing with the clean, he said, that's it, I'll make a record and you guys will back me. I'll go and make a, you know, Peter Gullard and you'll be the backing band. I said, that's a fucking great idea. Mm. If we can somehow get, get together in the same spot and do it. Mm-hmm. So it's a wonderful idea and I was into it. So, you know, there were things like that flying around too. Is there anyone else you would consider that for? Because I was sure, thinking, I'm thinking you've, you've, you've been part of the, you know, backing band for other people and you've had established bands be yeah. back you. It's, it's lovely backing other people. Yeah. The spotlight's not on you, you can just play. Mm. It's lovely. I love doing it. Mm. I love being in Snapper. Mm. I should just sit over there in my corner and do my bit on that one call or that one riff. <laughs> you know, I just loved it. Yeah. 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 I get the feeling that when you play your trying to disappear into... I do disappear. Yeah. When it's working, yeah, I do. Mm. Like the, the bubble just appears and I don't know what's going on. Mm. The lead of the song or something goes from it. The very first time I saw the clean play, I happened to be side of stage and uh, it was amazing watching all three of you go to different places to make sure that the music went into one place. Right. You know, yeah. it was, you were all in your own world. Right, doing every job. Doing, doing your job, yeah. And this, and this 20 minute version of Point That Thing oh, lovely. just <laughs> sat hovering above you all kind of thing. And Wonderful. I felt like I could, you know, almost see the music. I love playing for the claim, yeah. Mm. It's great. Yeah. It's, it's nice to hear though. It's very, it's very, well, it's very obvious that you all do when it happens. Like yeah, it, yeah. It, you know, I've since seen you a couple of other times, but that first time for me... You drift off. You just, yeah. 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 Um, well, we've had a nice chat. Is there anything else you wanna? No. You're not a you're not a plugging kind of guy, and we've mentioned that you're on tour at the moment in the new record. But is there anything? It sounds like you're gonna go and make some paintings and not think about music for a while after this when this I'll tour ends. I've got surfing. I just bought a new yeah. surfboard up. I had it for three, two months, and I haven't even got on it yet. So that's what I hope to do. But we're supposed to go to Chile. Oh yeah. Um, and do a show on the twenty first. We were in Chile for Christmas and do a show on the 21st of December, but have you seen the news about Chile? Mm, supposed yeah. to go to Santiago, so I'm wow. not too yes. sure about that. Well, what takes you to Chile? A record label called Blow Your Mind Records. Mm. Um, it's a psychedelic label. Really. They're big fans, so they're going to fly me over and tour the band and girlfriend partners, and uh, we're doing a little festival show. I think it's their birthday party. Sonic Boom. Oh yeah, yeah. We'll do it happens tomorrow. But other than that, I'll be safe and I can't wait. Where do you want to start? Where, where you want to start? Where do I want to start? Well, I want to start with what gets us here now. What gets us here now is you played in Wellington last night. Mm-hmm. You're back in New Zealand for a couple of weeks. What brought you back here? A few weeks. Well, um, I've got a couple of very good friends in Nelson. Yeah. Old friends. Um, Danny Manero is playing bass yeah. and kind of tour management, booking the tour. Yeah. Which we did in February. A little North Island tour. And we played down south. Mm. We had so much fun doing that, and it was booked literally on the road. Mm. I got offered a gig in Tauranga, and then I suddenly Stu 
I said, Stu, we've got Danny will take us to Tauranga. Let's book a tour of North Island. Stu booked the tour, and then we sort of arranged dates in Christchurch and Dunedin. And we're on tour. This mm. was six months or seven months ago. Danny said, that was so much fun, let's do it in nine months. His brother, you know, uh, God bless him, and his partner, his wife Hilary, they're old friends that I first met with Danny 30 years ago in Auckland. And um, Louis said, hey, come over and paint our house and we'll pay you, we'll, and we'll pay you airfare over as part mm. of the payment. Mm. So this sort of happened one month before I came. I had to make a decision, like, should I go to New Zealand in the spring after being there, you know, seven months earlier? Do we do a tour on top of me, you know, doing this painting job? And then I'll, I'll do a bit of R&R painting in Nelson, and then I'll go on tour, you know. So that's, that's the that's, story. That's the story. And how often do you come across here? Like, how random usually, are you? Usually I come every year. Yeah. Um, there's... A couple of stretches in the 30 years I've lived in New York where I did make it for a year, two years once and maybe 18 months. But regularly I usually come in February to New Zealand and usually it's to do with all sorts of things. But mm. sometimes it's other things like I came for the um, opera, Silver Scrolls, um, or you know something else going on or a tour. <coughs> it hasn't been to make any new music by the clean for a while. No. What's going on there? Well, um... There's a few things going on. Uh, the Christchurch earthquake, we tried to do some recording. We were given a little grant from Via Graham Downs to record. We were kind of messed up with the quake, um, and we did some stuff at the old um, Radio New Zealand studios that are part of the university now, mm. you know, uh, the Polytech or whatever, or the course it's running, the music course at the university, and um, it didn't sort of work out. We're in a pretty weird state. That didn't happen. Um, the last record we did together, Mr. Pop. Yeah, that's coming up. That's about 10 years ago. Yeah, we pieced it together in New York, some tracks, and we did the rest in Dunedin. Um, and essentially, we've done a bit of touring now. Something that's happened is David and Bob have both concurrently, and myself, have had you know, mm. uh, concurrent parallel musical activity. David has, in New Zealand, has, you know, he's done 10 solo albums. Mm. I've done two, and Bob has done countless other things. Yeah, yeah. But I've actually done other projects that people in New Zealand don't even know about, like yeah. obscure yeah. things, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So essentially what it is is um, divergent paths. The clean's there. I'm always keen. My brother is always a bit on the fence about whether he wants to do that or whether he wants to focus on his own, st own stuff. And Bob... Bob's always present, but mm. he's also got other stuff going on as well. You know? Yeah, so you don't... And the legacy of The Clean is such that you don't need to make new recordings for no. The Clean to go and play a show ever, yeah, yeah. ever, yeah. Or, or get together and, yeah. you know... You can and that's kind of interesting because mm. one of the things we've done since we reunited in um, 1989 in London and made the, the vehicle album is we, we sort of fought hard against well are we going to become a revival act mm. you, know, you know 10 years after the fact like mm. what are we going to do we can't just live off whatever has gone we've got to do something new and we made a conscious effort with vehicle and the material we went out and toured um, that record through New Zealand Australia we went to America to New York and we toured through Germany with those songs mm. and we we bumped them into shape touring. Gary Cope, who was working at Flying Nun, I came back from New York and I, Belter Space had made um, Tanker 
and gone to New York. It was weird at the same time, concurrently, Bob was touring with the Bats in Europe, David was in London because of a New Zealand excellent compensation money for his partner. And we got offered um, to play with the Chills in London if I got over from New York, because I was going to New York with Belter Space. So I agreed to before I left New Zealand, and we played a couple of shows with the Chills in New York. The Chills manager said, why don't you come back and tour Germany? next year and we said okay so we're going to Germany after this reunion gig in London and we had vehicle and then Rough Trade said hey we'll record an album which we did and um, then we went back and toured the record in Germany mm. we went for a second time mm. and went to the States and we didn't go to we did go to Australia I can't remember I think we went to Australia soon well, what, what took you to New York and what's kept you in, in, largely in America? Well, I always wanted to go there. Um, I'd been to London and I'd been to LA briefly, but I'd never... I'd always wanted to go to New York City. It kind of intrigued me. Intrigued, and intrigued me. Los Angeles and American culture intrigues me. And not just those places, but also Memphis and mm. the whole legacy, the blues, the R&B, soul, jazz, you name it. And I always perceived New York you know, as being a place where some of my favourite music had originated out of and the punk scene had fermented, you know, so it had an immense attraction to me as a place that I wanted to go to. And I was a Velvet Underground freak. So where do you go if you want yeah, to yeah. learn about the Velvet Underground? Yeah. You go where it came where it out of. Go, yeah. go and kneel down yeah. at the altar. Yeah, yeah. 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 And Although I didn't kneel at the altar <laughs> unless I kneeled I never kneeled outside of CBGB's right. or yeah, yeah. Max's Kansas City or... Yeah, yeah. But, you know... But you're soaking it up. My landlord in Brooklyn mm. saw the velvets in the 60s. Wow. You know, he wow. just went down to the dorm on St. Mark's Place, you know. Yeah. I used to see Joe um, Ramon walking around and Dee standing outside the Chelsea Hotel. I mean, mm. you know, these are people... You know, I had a chat, I had a brief interaction with Lou Reed at a movie theatre. Someone had bailed him up in a stairwell and was... Asking him about something, he said, "Hey Lou," and he said, "I said I, I just got you your your early recordings on that single, and I really like it." And he just said, "Thank you." And I, thought, I mean, what what more can you ask for from yeah, Lou Reed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lou yeah. Reed saying thank you is like you know asking. Um, well, he probably said it three times in his life. Yeah, but you know, <laughs> and one of them was to you. <laughs> at, at that point, he'd mellowed out, and yeah, I, yeah, I approached yeah. him politely. Yeah. He was being harangued by somebody, yeah, yeah, and I just yeah. said, "Look, hey Lou, yeah, yeah. that's a good one." You know, I said, yeah. "Hey." But yeah. it wasn't any sort of like, oh, you know, I want to get you, Lou, and I want to sort of like yeah, milk yeah. your brain or whatever. You know? Which is what happens to people, right? Like yeah. They, and he would have dealt, I mean, he didn't necessarily deal with it a good way. But Have you seen a uh, press conference? And, yeah, yeah, the Australian one. And, you know, I would read about it and rip it up, and there's a yeah. surf magazine that yeah. had an interview with him, you know, when he was in his bomb rock and roll yeah, yeah. period, and it's like, whoa, that stuff is... He was really he, unfriendly and yeah. antagonistic. Oh, totally. He was you know. one of the one of the worst, and yeah, that made yeah. him one of the best, yeah. right? To a lot of us, you know. You know, when we're learning Andy, this stuff. Andy Warhol's um, A to Z. Mm. You know, he's hanging out with Lou in the West Village, and some people are haranguing Lou on the street, and he just turns around and says, "Kill yourselves." Mm. I mean, mm. talk about you know, just go kill yourselves. But I've always been interested, like with you, I feel like that spirit, the spirit of the Velvet Underground, that beatnik spirit. It's it's there in everything that you you haven't lost it. Like no. you know, the most recent album under your name is has this kind of early, early Angus McLeese Velvet Underground kind of feel yeah. to it. 
and and the EP that you did with Tiny Ruins, mm-hmm. and I, th- I mean I loved that, and I wrote about that. Um, how you kind of I think muddied up her sound just just in the right way because she she does very beautiful pretty stuff yeah, yeah. and the prettiness is still there and you became like a kind of agent of grime yeah. underneath it how did yeah. that collaboration happen well um tiny tiny ruins activated it she mm. was coming to new york to play the new music uh, the not the new music seminar the tmj and i got a message from her um via someone well via her will mm. you play drums with me it's like will i play drums with tiny ruins now this is where my confusions had begun. I thought that Tony Ruins was from Christchurch. I didn't realise that I actually see, I saw her play in Sydney at a thing with um, when the Clean were in Sydney. Mm. I just caught the end of what she's doing, and I thought that that sounds kind of interesting. Someone said it's Tony Ruins, and I forgot that. I thought Tony Ruins was from Christchurch. I thought she was maybe Elders Harding, and I got this idea that she was Elders Harding, and she was sort of slightly mentally deranged, or she had mental problems. And that's who I thought Tony Ruins was. Then I look her up, and it's like, oh, there's all this stuff, and it's like, oh, shit, this is really good. Mm. And she's coming to New York, and she wants me to do some percussion or something. Mm. And um, there was somebody associated with the New Zealand Music Commission who was instrumental. He'd been there before, and I'd met him before. And then when I met him with her, he said, oh, you got your drummer. <laughs> you know, and it was kind of mm. cool. Mm. I walked on stage at a club on Ludlow Street, and we had not met. And I said, hello, Holly, I'm Hamish. Hello, Hamish, I'm Holly. We're on stage in five minutes. She goes up on stage and works at a set list, and I'm just standing there with my stuff, my bag of stuff. Mm. We get on stage and play. And that's the first gig. Mm. It was a bit rough. Mm. But I, I'd listened to some of the material, and I got the kind of idea. And I've done a lot of improv and a lot mm. of very spontaneous playing in New York, so it wasn't that difficult. But we got progressively better. We had like a week of going to different weird gigs in New York and you know we'd go and have dinner before or after mm, and mm. talk and hang out when there's other people around New Zealanders and you know it's just kind of sweet mm. so we evolved a, a rapport within that week and um, we played at a large club that had been the original Village Gate it's now um, another, another name but mm. that was kind of very symbolic to me because I'd seen some very interesting people play there when I first went to New York mm, mm. and uh, so we played that it's now Poisson Rouge in the, in the West Village and you can still you could still see the old Village Gate uh, sign Lugosi's um, or whatever Village Gate was still up there on the wall like Folk City when I first went to New York where Bob Dylan played and Bradley Jack Elliott that was still there mm. even though it was demolished and I saw a recent interview recently with Jack Elliott walking down the street he's like in his 80s you know he's a mate of Bob Dylan's on the um Rolling Thunder tour. Mm. Jack goes in a bar and he's in a cowboy hat and some African brings and says, hey cowboy, he doesn't know who the hell Jack Elliott is, that he was a mm. kind of a mentor for all these people, you know, including Mick Jagger. He was the first American sort of country blues dude that they ever saw, you mm. know. Mm. Um, he has a pal of um, Woody Guthrie's. Mm. And he walked into a bar and he said, hey, this is the da-da-da-da club. You know, I played here in 1963 and people just said, who the fuck are you? You know, maybe you shouldn't be in here. It's mm. Ramblin' Jack Elliott. I don't know, his daughter. Mm. You know, she, she lived in New York and she made a movie about Ramblin' Jack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you, I mean, how did you first come to music? Because you lived in pretty isolated conditions in New Zealand in a time when, you know, it was a chore to get this stuff. But something clearly lit the fuse for you and it hasn't stopped. Well, I'll tell you what. There's this... I, I, I perceive it as a mythos 
that New Zealand was uninformed musically. Okay, my mother is a singer and a piano player, and she sang in country um, music reviews, mm. and she sang at church, at Presbyterian Church, Protestant Church. And she told me she was in Christchurch in the 50s, and she's going down to a dance, and she hears Rock, rock Around the Clock for the first time, played by a New Zealand band. This isn't, you know, when it came out, mm -hmm. it was a New Zealand band doing mm -hmm. Rock Around the Clock, and she's going there with my dad to see Rock Around he, mm -hmm. She hears Rock Around the Clock. I mean, there wasn't much of a delay in New Zealand with records being pressed mm -hmm. of American and British material. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up with New Zealand radio, and, the, and also my mother and father collected records, mm -hmm. like Harry Belafonte. You know, mm. that album with, you know, Dale, Dale, yeah. yo, Daylight Come and I Wanna Go Home. There's all that stuff. There's all the Latin stuff, late 50s, mm. the musicals. You know, I went and saw Mary Poppins in the morning at 11 o'clock in Dunedin, mm. and at 4 o'clock I saw The Sound of Music. Mm. You know, I rest my case. It's sort of like New Zealand received, you know, my mother went and saw The Wizard of Oz in the, when it came out in Christchurch. You know, mm. and I hadn't—I didn't see *The Wizard of Oz* until the '80s. I never saw that film. Then I saw it. My God, you know what an incredible film. Mm. You know, um, New Zealand. You know, you got Ronald Hugh Morrison up in Hara writing Kerouacki and sort of beatnik novels around the same time that Jack Kerouac's doing it. Mm. Because his mother, they had a copy of *Ulysses* by James Joyce. And he's reading it as a teenager, a kid. Mm. I mean, you know, Janet Frame. Mm. All these people. And the thing is, um. Myself, as soon as I could get hold of it and found out about it, I found out about Jack Kerouac at 16 or 17. I go on a hitchhiking trip with my cousin in the early 70s around New Zealand. I go to Gisborne for the first time. I, you know, I meet Rastafarians, kids, Maori kids, and have look north mm. and hang out with them and like them. Mm. You know, and we talk about Bob Marley because I had Bob the Whalers Live. I'd already heard that stuff. You know, I was listening to reggae, I was listening to Thin Lizzy, I was listening to seeing Roxy Music on TV, I was, heard David Bowie's Starman on the radio at, at a boys' hostel in 19, when it came out in 1972. I heard Heart of Gold on the radio, I heard you name it. Mm -hmm. This was all, and all the, so the New Zealand stuff, you know, everybody saw, in New Zealand saw split ends. Yeah. Well, David says that uh, you. New faces. Well, David says that um, not just you and him, but I guess. Alec Bathgate, Chris Knox, the, the, the team that started to emerge um, were basically enabled by, I guess, the early punk proponents. Is, mm -hmm. that, how, is, that, is that true? Like that's that, true. That's kind of what gave you the... You were fans of music, but that's what gave you the... I don't know, the... the license. Key, the, the license, the keys to explore. Yeah, definitely. Look, um, I had a... In the 60s, I had a cousin who was a mod in Christchurch. Mm. And um, I said... Um, Who's your favourite? The Rolling Stones or the Beatles? And he said, The Pretty Things. Mm. And why did he say that? Because the Pretty Things toured here in '65. Yeah. And he saw the Stones and he saw the Pretty Things. And, you know, Roy Montgomery from the Pin Group, I bet you no one's ever told you this. He went to see the Rolling Stones with his sister in Christchurch. You know, you're a kid mm. going to see the Stones. Come on. Wouldn't that blow your mind as yeah, a six yeah. year old or something? Yeah. Or whatever. Well, we were, I've talked about that with a couple of people, the, including with David the other week, was just the, the sheer number of magical things that did turn up in New Zealand in the in the 60s yeah. and through the 70s and 80s. 
things like Chuck Berry a little bit after his heyday. Yeah, day, 73. Still, yeah. You know, like, hey, yeah. look, we saw, I saw the Beatles playing on TV, on DNTV, yeah. uh, one, two, or whatever, playing at the town hall. They put it on TV. You mm. watch it in mm. Ranfurly, mm. many a total planes. There's the Beatles at the town hall. Mm. Live, you know, live. Yeah. They recorded it. I don't know what happened to it, whatever they had it on. Mm. Probably no. take over it lost it. Yeah, yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> Who yeah. knows what they did with their work stuff. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. I can't even really differentiate when videotape took yeah, over, yeah. you know, colour TV and all yeah. that, you know. But there's this, I mean, this is what I'm trying to get at with you, is there's this restless curiosity about you and your, I mean, we don't know each other, we only just met no. last night, and yeah. we've hung out a little bit over the last night and this morning, but we've also talked a little bit online over the years and aware of each other, mm-hmm. but what I've sort of got from your interactions and your performance and your music, and I use the two words separately, because sometimes mm-hmm. they're completely separate, is a sort of restless curiosity. Yeah. Do you think that's... Yeah, I think it's... Valid? Yeah, yeah. Because some people give up. They know yeah, what they, yeah. they stop. They know what they can do and they keep doing it. You're and But they also, that can be in terms of taste too. Like people get stuck with their time, you know. You seem quite happy to fail as well. Well, or not, you, maybe not happy, but... But if you don't try, yeah, yeah. you know, so and if you, you don't seem, fail... You seem open to it. Yeah, well, you know, you can fail, but you'll, you can't always learn something. Yeah. It's when you stop trying to understand something, that's when you fail, really fail. It's when you just sort of give up on trying. You know? mm-hmm. um, look, here's a couple of... This is sort of true confessions. Um, in 1976, I was hitchhiking through New Zealand with my cousin, and... Part of the reason I wanted to do it was to pick up secondhand records. So in Nelson, I go into Everyman Records and I pick up the Notorious Bird Brothers, Dr. Birds of Mr. Hyde, and something else. And I, my brother was younger than me. You know, I'm I'm 17 or 18, 17, 18, 18 around that time, 17. Yeah, actually 18. Hitchhiking around New Zealand, you know, and um. You know, you go to little towns, you go to Nelson, you go to other places I've never been before. What do you look for? Nelson was a hippie haven. I find mint copies, or not, pretty good copies from the Royce Bird Brothers. You know, we were record obsessives. It's like, you know, Nirvana. I didn't get to hear that record until I posted it back to Dunedin. Mm. My brother's sitting back in Dunedin because we're West Coast psychedelic freaks. And he's receiving these packages that I'm sending from all around New Zealand because I go to the stores, I got a bit of cash. You know, the Troy's Bird Brothers for the first time. Uh, I mean, that would sort of blow your mind if you'd never heard it before. Mm-hmm. Chris Knox, when I met him for the first time, I just thought him and this friend Chris Moody, who became the roadie, were absolutely out of their minds, but I loved them. You know, my first experience was going back from the Captain Cook in Dunedin to Chris Knox's house. He's dressed in a black suit, and he starts miming to uh, David Bowie, thin white Duke period mm. bootleg with a beer can mm. and just being crazy and then I find it well, Chris is making Super 8 films and recording music with McDawson on a piano and doing sort of tripped out versions of Row Your Boat you know gently down the stream merrily merrily mm. it's like what are these guys doing and they're, they're playing Super 8 film scratch films with the Pretty Things Parachute and then I take Ali Steve for the first time via Chris and Chris Moody and I took it at a beach trip, and I'm tripping. I go back home, and I've decided at this point I'm going to sell the surfboard because it's either going to be music or surfing. Mm. So I sell my surfboard, tripping on acid, with my mother, listening to the Grateful Dead, 
and I sell it. And then that night, I'm coming down, I go down to Chris Knox's place, and he says, I got some good music for you. What are you going to play me? Some of these rarities out of the record collection. I hear the Stooges for the first time on Acid coming down. I hear the Seeds. I hear Nick Drake. I hear all the stuff, because these guys are record hounds, you know, and they've got all the stuff. They've got Chris and the two Chris's have this massive record collection that takes up a wall. And they go through it and it's just like, well, what? this stuff is incredible. It's just mind-blowing. I've never heard this stuff before. And I'm hearing it on LSD for the first time. And it sort of has quite a strong effect. You know, before that I'd, you know, smoked Buddha sticks and listened to all sorts of stuff. I was Rolling Stones freak as soon as I saw Gimme Shelter on Christchurch. And I bought Tumbling Dice when it came out. I went to Dunedin and I bought a second-hand copy of um, Sticky Fingers from Mog's Market. I also bought Exile Main Street when it came out. And the capping review in Dunedin that year was based on Exile Main Street. And that was on the radio. You could hear in Christchurch on 3ZM and you'd hear Rocks Off and Rip This Joint. Or, no, Rocks Off and Happy on the radio in New Zealand. Mm. You know, on the radio. Now, you think about the transition into the conservative element of the 70s where people, you know, private uh, radio, public, you know, pirate radio stations, Haraki, whatever, whatever, whatever. I worked for um, Forex, I was a copywriter, and all the people from Haraki came down to Dunedin, and Karen Hay was brought down as a copywriter. I met her before she was at Radio Pictures. And she, she kind of floored me because she was incredibly intelligent and an amazing copywriter. And I was the, the other copywriter at the time. And they brought down this Auckland crew from Hauraki. And it was like, cool, these people are really... Tony Amos, who worked at Hauraki, his father was the Minister of Broadcasting. He told me that his father brought back The Doors' first album when he was a teenager to him. Mm. You know, I mean... So that, that whole sort of process of... You know, Barry Jenkins used to get um, air-freighted... Um, uh, London pressing, you know, uh, all the punk stuff coming out. Mm. We used to listen to Haraki to the Barry Jenkins show. You know, I'd be tuning in a Dean, it was like really fine on this little um, valve transistor radio. And then we get it, it's like hearing dub, you know, coming in. Mm. Or hearing, you know, um, teardrop explodes for the first time. It's like, mm. what the hell is that? Or hearing Joy Division in 1979 in Auckland on the Barry Jenkins show mm. and you know a friend of mine revealed that he was the one who brought it back and gave it to him mm. it's just incredible and despite the this is called, they talk about the three month lag of the NME and sounds I was consuming that stuff in the 70s you know I was opening up and looking at David Bowie Ziggy Stardust and those records are available but they talk about oh the three month lag we, I read about the Sex Pistols and looked at photographs of them before I heard the music but when I saw the photographs, I thought, what the fuck is this? I haven't seen anything like this. They've got these, you know, Karl Marx, Stencil, Vivian Westwood, Malcolm McLaren shirts, and they've got short hair, and they're talking all the stuff, you know, and the clash, and I never heard, then, oh, there's a group called Television in New York. Then you hear the record, and you just go, what is this? What is it? It's not, I haven't heard this before. I don't know, this is, this is something else, you know. I listened to that television record, and I just couldn't believe it because it wasn't like anything I'd ever heard before. And I heard the, you know, Pierre Rubu's Data Pink in the Year Zero, or I heard Robin Hitchcock and the doing it with the soft boys doing waiting through a ventilator on a, on a fantastic stereo system. This like this other guy, Jeff Rustin, had a record store called um, um, Eureka on Princess Street. Um, you know, I go into his store and Chris says, "Gotta hear this, man. This is the damn neat, 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 and full volume in a record store." 
What the fuck's that? What is that? What is that? So if all of, if all of this gives you the, the license to experiment and create and become the clean and you know everything that happens from there, what what's given you the license to uh, continue? Well, yes, I was going to say not just continue, but to eventually release solo albums because, as you say, you've you've done a lot of recording and performance with in a lot of different configurations, but it's really only been recently that the solo yeah. albums have started to happen under your name. Yeah. Did that require a a sort of uh, you know? Was there a legitimacy test that you felt had to happen before your name not really. went on the spine? Not really. Um, I've never been too worried about the label or what name you give something. Although, mm. I, you know, like I named The Clean. And The Clean was named after a, a character, Mr. Clean, in a Hells Angels film mm. who was, um, you know, named that. But Mr. Clean is also a cleaning agent in mm. New Zealand, mm. in uh, America with mm. a bald-headed guy, Mr. Clean, on the package. So words have always fascinated me. I've got a, uh, a double major in English and history from Otago University. I finished my BA before I was 20, and then I went to work and I was on the dole. And so my experience concurrently with punk in 77 into 78, 77 I finished my degree, and in 78 I was working on a PEP scheme, straight out of university. So um, in New Zealand we're experiencing exactly the same things that British people were experiencing. So it wasn't a big jump to go from I'm on the dole in Dunedin in 78 to I'm on the dole in London in 78 or Manchester. The American story is different. It's a lot harder and more brutal. You know, but there was this correlation. You know, there's this um, you know, understanding of what's going on and why young people are questioning and making new music. I heard... The Modern Lover, on that hitchhiking trip where I bought Notorious Brothers mm. and Nelson, I was in a hippie cafe, happy kind of mod cafe. I heard Roadrunner for the first time by The Modern Lovers. And it's like, what is that? I went up and asked, and he said, it's a group called The Modern Lovers, and that's Roadrunner. Yeah. What? And then I go back to Christchurch, Nell Parks, had a, a, a junk store, record store on Papineau Road. He says, hey, you heard about the Ramones? No. Oh, there's these guys from New York, and they're playing this kind of... Beatlesque sort of minimalist thing, you know, and I didn't get to hear the record until a year later. But this, and when I heard that, it's like I bought a copy of the Ramones and the Flaming Groovies Shake Some Action on Sire that was imported by Eureka Records in Dunedin, and took both of them home and listened to them, and just floored mm. by them. When I first heard Hey Ho, Let's Go, I couldn't believe it. I had never heard anything like it before in my life, and those sort of moments with music. You know, they just turn your, they turn your mind upside down. You know, something changed, immediate shift. At the same time, concurrently, heard the Velvet Underground's um, live, double live album. Mm. And um, thinking about, hey, Motaka just had a snare beat. That's all she's doing, standing up and what goes on? I could do that. And the first gig I did, that's all I did. I just had a snare. I couldn't play the drums. And I was scared that I was going to get bottled by the thugs in Dunedin yeah. so I built a wall just in case they threw bottles at us they didn't so we played like three songs you know like I'm in love with these times uh, maybe a song I, I've got a negative life standing you know we had all these we wrote these crap songs just like mm. but we're inspired by the Ramones it's like we had a song called Dumb mm. you know mm. like our own version of trying to articulate yeah, yeah. that and yeah. I'd gone to university so 
I was kind of like, you know, I used to, um, I could translate old English, and I studied history, medieval history, you know, um, New Zealand history, history of the Pacific, mm. you know, whatever, whatever. So I had a, um, an awareness. We were Bob Dylan freaks, you know, mm. David mm. and I at high school. You know. Yeah, because it doesn't seem to take that long between these dumb songs and, uh, you know, not dumb but simple songs mm. that become profound. Uh, you know, I'm just going to think, uh, you know, Big Nick, Tally Ho, Anything Could Happen mm-hmm. are just the first three I think of. But I can see how they arrive on the back of what you call dumb songs. Yeah. That's just that's just you perfecting the dumb song really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, or just... Stripping it down to yeah, what Yeah, and also getting inspired yeah. as you got better at what yeah, you're doing. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, and learn to play that's you. what I mean, like it mm. becomes simple rather than yeah. dumb. There's but a, you look at the Ramones, you know, there's that footage of them fighting on stage at CBGB saying, mm. oh, we're going to do that one, oh, we'll do that one, ah, oh, no, I don't want to do that one, mm. we'll do this one. Mm. You know, just sort of like amateur, you know, mm. amateur hour, you know, and that was sort of interesting too. Mm. We got what it was about, you know, people said, oh, the Six Pistols can't play their instruments. The guy... We lived opposite this guy called Miles Swider was in a band called, he had a terrible band. He was kind of a heavy metal freak, but his father was the program director at 4CB. When Anarchy in the UK came in on the EMI label, he threw the record in the garbage can and Miles White picked it up and took it home. Mm. You know, and he lived across the street. Mm. And it's like, Anarchy in the UK, there it is, you know. <laughs> and it was thrown out by the radio, by Radio mm. New Zealand. Mm. You know? They didn't want to, it's a piece of shit, you know, because mm. already it had been identified in the UK as a bad thing. Mm. They were bad people. It was bad music, it wasn't even music, it was crap. We faced that in the need and people just hated us. We had, we went to the Battle of the Bands at the downtown tavern and we played a three song medley because we knew that it was the only chance we would have to actually do something kind of subversive. Mm. So we did that and we, of course we got nowhere. You know, and we had we played another pub before the Empire and nobody came to see us and the manager just pulled the plug on us. He just pulled out the power and said, Get the, get out of here. I don't want you here anymore. <laughs> yeah, there was about two or three people there. You know. <laughs> get out of here. Well I was gonna say, are you astounded that you go from that to having a I guess a career in, in music in various forms, but I, I guess, you know, and what I witnessed last night is you're still living on that, the potential that the plug could be pulled at any mm. point on a performance. Mm-hmm. There is that knife edge thing you're walking. Yeah. Well, you know, to make it exciting with performance, I think you should always sort of challenge yourself and the people you're playing with to try to do something, try to push it beyond what you think you're capable of or what also by happen, happenstance and improv and all mm. the stuff I've done mm. so you seize the moment and it's a lot like you can turn the moment you can die and you can live you know mm. and um, the previous night we played in um, New Plymouth and we played in um, Tauranga and we kind of died there There's, it's a lot about set and setting which is old mm. um you know, drug taking acid head sort of talk. You know, the setting's important, and the way you set things up, and also the setting, like it really informs what you do. Mm. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes you just fall flat on your face, but it's the next night can be just magic. Mm. And what I'm always looking for with performance is getting in the zone with the audience together to the zone. Because when you get there, you go somewhere else. Mm. You lift, you each, you lift it higher, you know. But it's very important the dynamic in a live performance, like what happens, and what you throw out, and what the audience, how the audience responds, and it can turn a, a potentially cool night into a disastrous night or a failure, you know. And mm. I really feel that. You write, you paint, you 
perform in a structured sense and then in a completely unstructured sense and various versions around that on a few different instruments. Uh, these sound like different things that for some people and then they sound like just different versions of the same thing for others. How do mm. you approach it? Is it all is it all one thing you're channeling and no, or it, are they very separate things? All, all divisions, you know, all divisions that have been created in art uh, exist, but they overlap and they also interrelate. And sometimes, you know, I might paint or draw for a bit, and then I might sort of drop it, and then I might sort of focus on music because sometimes you just get stuck with mm. things you get mm. stuck where you are and where you've been and you just want to go somewhere else and sometimes you just got to walk away from it my brother does that all the time with what he does mm. you know he paints um, quite, uh, quite a lot I was actually astounded to see how many paintings he'd knocked out in the last five years you know it's like wow mm. he's been really going at it you know I got the feeling he was doing that um, more than he was doing music, he was doing it maybe to maybe to keep him from making music because he didn't want to. He didn't feel ready. Well, yeah, there's that, but there's also, you know, when some people do things like Brian Wilson, mm. you know, he's got such a strange mind that he'll go and play um, something weird on the piano, trying to solve some sort of problem mm. musically that relates to something else that he's doing. You know, mm. like he'll go and be weird and go off and do this thing, then he'll come back to what he's trying to sort of break out of or push forward mm. on you know mm. so people do that you know? mm. I think artists do that constantly with what they do what um, is I asked you this off tape if you'd write a book and you said that if you did it would be in the vein of Dylan's Tarantula or even John Lennon's In My Own Right it would be as I would expect and fans of your work would expect quite a rambling um, esoteric thing rather than a straight narrative yeah. and a straight conventional mm. is that something that has been on your mind to do that? Yeah maybe yeah. Um, if I do it you know I'll do it when I'm ready I tried to write a fairy tale for Finkelstein and I, mm. I just sort of let it go and I thought it's kind of interesting I sort of threw the idea about what I was trying to do with that out to people and there's two people that sing their songs they wrote in response to it on the record there's mm. Alessandra Everoni did um under the Moon and my friend Jared Eggers did um, Sidetrack mm. so I sort of threw it out and I thought I don't know if I want to tie this down and I couldn't tie down the narrative I sort of had a, a schematic that I explained to them about the idea and in retrospect I think I maybe maybe made the right decision because there are suggestions of my narrative within the work but it's kind of a bit subconscious mm. so isolated tracks become these kind of um, strange sort of mantras or something or expressions of a certain sensibility. So mm. I find that kind of interesting. I don't know what I'm going to do for the next one, but I might do it in New Zealand with Danny and um, Stuart, mm. just to sort of change track. I did the last two with Gary Olsen. Mm. He's an amazing producer, but I might want to do something different with the next thing that I do. Mm. We're talking about that. We're talking about starting doing that at the end of this tour. Mm. 